Hello and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I, I thought we made it to the, the cooler part of the year, I thought we made it to the fall, but it's uh, it's nice and hot here in Arizona again, but maybe that's fitting because <laughs> the playoffs, they're heating up, we, we, we've got the divisional series, things are exciting as we speak right now, we have a couple of real exciting games going. Uh, how are you doing, and how are you enjoying the playoffs so far? Um, I was kind of hoping there would be more contentiousness, if that's the right word, in the wild card round. But we had sweep, 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 sweep. So, okay, fine. But now we're into, I think it's getting a little bit more competitive, a little bit more like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be, these are going to be good series. I mean, I was just talking to my kids about Phillies Braves, and they were like, whoa. I mean, that's just like, Phillies are hot, Braves are great. Who's going to win that? You know, so so it's fun. These these matchups are fun. The Diamondbacks are fun. The Orioles are fun. So I think it's going to all be very entertaining. I completely agree. I, you know, as as someone with some rooting interests in the Twins and D-backs, I'm I can't complain too much about the wild card round. But I'm with you. It was a bit of a bummer to have them all over so quick. To have those four other teams: Rays, Brewers. Uh, uh, there were two other teams, weren't there? Marlins and, <laughs> um, oh boy, don't tell me. <laughs> I'm, missing, I'm missing an AL team, aren't I? Yeah. Uh, Blue Jays. Uh, Blue Jays. Yes, Blue Jays. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Sorry, Canada. Um, <laughs> bummer to have those four so uh, so memorable teams, clearly, uh, <laughs> knocked out so soon, and, and especially to have a couple of off days of baseball between the wild card round and the, NLD, or the divisional series, but um, still fun, and now we're, yeah. like I said, in, in the midst of what's looking like a good start, at least, to these divisional series. We had a close Rangers-Orioles game, this Twins-Astros game is 6-4 right now as we speak, the, the Phillies and Braves, I think that's going to be an awesome series. They're scoreless and uh, have D-backs and Dodgers division rivalry on deck. So I'm going to be glued to this the rest of the weekend. (laughs) So, And the other thing I noticed is, and this is not uncommon, but so at the end of the regular season, even kind of leading up to it, our traffic starts to go up on our site because a lot of – and that's good, and that's what it's for is because a lot of fans of teams are like, okay, what do we do in the offseason? Let's get a jump on it. And that's when people start playing around with trade scenarios, which is great, which is what it's for. And then we say, okay, so then there's 12 teams in the playoffs. But what happened was as soon as the four got knocked out of the wild card round, we're seeing a lot of rays. Okay, what do we do about the rays? How can we fix them? What do we do about the blue jays? So, so those four an hour in the mix. And um, so, so it's kind of a – Bad news for the Freights fans and those teams fans that got knocked out, but it's also, hey, let's talk about the offseason. Now that now they're getting a jump on that. So so it's fun to see as well if if you know, if you're like me and you like like doing, you know, roster stuff. So uh that's what we're here for. Yeah, end of the day only one team is gonna win this thing and yeah. that just means every week there's another handful of disappointed franchises looking forward to the future and how they can fix their problems. Um, but yeah, why don't we, why don't we get into some of those teams that have already started to shuffle things around and prep themselves for this upcoming off season? You know, we don't have too many player transactions. There's a little bit of player news we can get to. 
Uh, but we sure do have a lot of front office and managerial movement. So let's dig into it. Uh, let's start with one of those few player moves that we have. Uh, the Rockies have extended outfielder Charlie Blackman. It's a one-year deal, $13 million guarantee, an extra $2 million in incentives based on how many plate appearances he tallies. Um, weird deal. So, so on the one hand, not a weird deal at all, you know. Um, the Rockies are the Rockies. They do stuff like this all the time. They are particularly loyal to their hometown-type guys. Blackman's been there forever. And they clearly like the guy, even as his performance has really deteriorated. Wow, I just pulled up his Fangraphs page, and that looks even worse than I remembered. Um, so, on on the face of it, makes all the sense in the world that they'd bring him back around. You know, they're no good. We don't expect them to be any good next year. What's the harm in keeping a fan favorite, a clubhouse guy, etc.? On the flip side of that, one, they probably think they're going to be good because they're the Rockies and they have these weird lofty expectations of themselves that don't always line up with reality. And two, 13 million is pretty steep for Blackman. So to compare that to last offseason, JD Martinez got 10 million, Michael Brantley got 12 million. And even that Brantley one was kind of like a, huh, are we sure about this? Cause he was coming off a pretty substantial injury. And it was, I guess a similar case of, of a team in the Astros hanging on to a guy that they really like and have had for a while. So I guess that's the closest comp here. But Brantley, when he plays, and as he's shown in his kind of return late season here, is a much better hitter than Blackman is at this stage in their careers. Uh, Blackman, you know, you could call it a bit of a rebound year in 2023, but it was still a 105 WRC plus, 0.8 F4. That's, that's a rebound over... His 2020 WRC plus of 97 or 2021, 93, 2022, 89. Like he's, even if you give him a generous outlook, he's maybe a league average hitter with not much of a glove. So there's not a whole lot to like here. <laughs> just, just being frank um, in terms yeah. of on field value. If they just want him back as, you know, that fan favorite clubhouse leader type. Sure. Why not? I think they paid a little bit more than they could for him, but we've also talked about, you know, they like putting butts in the seats. They sell out that stadium pretty frequently for a team as bad as they are. And that extra like gate revenue kind of gives them an opportunity to make deals like this that maybe don't line up totally fairly on a, on a value surplus standpoint, but if they want to make the move, they'll just go do it. Yeah. So, my first thought is, who are you competing against for Charlie Blackman for, I'm sorry, but 30, what is he, 38 now? Uh, he's going to be 38 next year. He's 37 now. So for his 38-year-old year, do you really think oh, a whole bunch of other teams are going to be knocking on the door for Charlie Blackman? Why do you have to give him that $13 million now, which is, yes, way overpaying for him? And also, <clears throat> just digging into the numbers a little bit, um, you know, he's benefiting a lot from Coors Field, right? His WRC Plus this past year was 114 at Coors, but 88 away. So his, his slash line away was 237, 337, 329. At home, it was 309, 383, 522. So my takeaway from that is, oh, look, he's a good hitter at home. Butts in the seats. Fans like to see a good hitter. He's a fan favorite, as you said. So he's going to come up and hit 309, 383, 522 at cores as a 37-year-old. Okay, that makes sense. The problem is 
he's, he's below average everywhere else, right? So, um, so from a trade value perspective, no other team would want to pay that much for him because he's a Coors guy, you know? So he's not going to do that well anywhere else, which is why he's going to have negative value on our site next time we update and why, you know, no other team would pay $13 million for him. Uh, but you can sort of weirdly justify, yeah, if he's hitting 114 WRC plus at cores, maybe the Colorado front office thinks he's worth keeping around. So that's, you know, that's kind of my sort of squint and maybe see the logic of this. But I still can't get past the fact that who are they negotiating with? You don't really have to overpay for him at this point. So it's just the Rockies. That is a really good point. And the question that I have as well is like, what's the upside here? Like, do do they see upside here? Do they see potential for him to be worth more than that? Like at thirty-eight. Yeah, because you know, typically when a team that's in a spot like the Rockies, when they're signing a, a veteran to a one-year deal like this, you, you can kind of look at it one of two ways as as kind of the best case scenario. Either a, hey, maybe they they jump their timeline a little bit, and this guy can lead them into like a surprise playoff run. And I don't think the Rockies are anywhere near that. They could make 10 more moves this offseason and still probably be nowhere near that. They're in a real bad spot. Um, and then the other kind of standpoint is like, oh, maybe this guy has a bounce back year. We can flip him at the deadline for a prospect and move our rebuild forward that way. And that's very clearly not what they're thinking here. Uh they're not trading Charlie Blackman, I don't think. I don't think that's anywhere near being on their mind. He's a guy they'll hang on to. Um, and especially at this salary point, I don't know how many teams would even be very interested in him at the deadline and coming from Coors and with all the baggage that kind of comes with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I just – if you want to keep your guy, sure. just seems a little steep. It seems like you're guaranteeing a lot of playing time to this guy who's not going to do a lot to advance your franchise in one way or another. Um but hey, you guys, Rockies, do your thing. You're, you're clearly, I don't know, are they happy with with how things have gone in the last handful of years? Because some of their moves seem to indicate that they are, which is like, okay, like if you guys really just want to operate that differently from everyone else and be the team that just cares about butts in the seats and not about winning, okay, but I know there's a subset of your fan base that's not going to like that too much. Uh, but it's been going on for a while now, so go figure. Yeah, well, we'll see what other puzzling moves they make this offseason. I guarantee this won't be their last. Um, one other quick note, just to kind of breeze through. Uh, MLB Trade Rumors and Matt Swartz uh, released their yearly arbitration projections. Um, Matt Swartz is a pretty reliable model. It's pretty successful year after year. Um, we have entered in all of these values, haven't quite pushed them to the site. I guess it's worth noting as well that there will be new values pushed to the site in the near future to account for end of season and for new salary values, things like that. Uh, So look out for that. That's coming soon. But very quickly kind of scanning down this arbitration list. um, the, The first name and really the main name that jumped out at me is Vladimir Guerrero Jr., He's projected to earn $20.4 million this season, and it's not even his final year of arbitration. Uh, he's heading toward non-tender territory pretty quick and a lot quicker than a lot of fans would think, I would say. Um, the 2023 season was not very kind to Vlad. Uh, it's been a pretty quick decline since that 
2021 MVP runner-up year where he was just incredible, just one of the best hitters in baseball, if not the best hitter in baseball that year. Um, he took a bit of a step back in 2022, which is, okay, fine. We knew he wasn't going to be a 166 WRC plus guy year after year. Uh, but taking another step back in 2023, and I've seen a lot of think pieces about, like, what actually went wrong here. Like, his expected stats are still pretty good, but he's just way behind them. Is it this? Is it that? Was he hurt? Is it because he's slow? Is it because he hits ground balls? There's a whole lot of different options, and I think some of the best pieces I've seen about it, I think one was from Mike Petriello of MLB.com, where he kind of concluded that it's probably just a bunch of different things, and maybe it's just a guy who isn't performing at his best. But at the end of the day, you know, he was he was a 118 WRC plus guy in 2023. He was worth one win above replacement, according to Fangraphs, and now he's heading into the $20 million range for salary. That's concerning, especially for a Blue Jays team with a decent num- decent amount of financial commitments and other arbitration guys who are getting raises. You look at Jordan Romano starting to get a little pricey, Dalton Varsho. I know he had a down year, but he's getting into real money now. Uh, Danny Jansen even, not to mention the guys on guaranteed contracts on that team. So he's the name that jumps out to me on this list of, yikes, that's not a great situation He's a star in name only at this point until he proves otherwise, until he steps forward. And, I mean, he this is a 24-year-old we're talking about. Like, there is still plenty of time for him to right the ship. But we're getting into concerning territory with Laddie. Totally. And, you know, it's almost like that pickoff at the end of the, in the second game of that uh, wild card round was sort of symbolic of, oh, what a bad year it's been for Laddie. I'm so sorry, Laddie. But um, that was just not good. Um, but, you know, um, I've seen also, like, uh, experts who understand swing mechanics kind of break down the changes in his swing, and that was not good either. Um, if you look at some of the, you know, analysis of what, what's different between this year and previous years, it's all off. He's just totally off. Like, he's lost his base. I'm not even a – I'm not a swing expert, so I'm not going to get into it. But, but, but they were making very, very solid points that his swing looks different this year than it has in the past. So maybe that's fixable. We've seen Cody Bellinger get fixed, for example, and others. So maybe that's that. So you, and to your point, he's not um, – he's not. there's no aging decline here. He's 24. Most players peak between, like, 25 and 30. So he's got, in theory, his peak years coming up. So I wouldn't give up on him yet, <clears throat> but – it was a really disappointing season, and because the way arbitration works, because you know he had some good years early on, he started getting paid early on, and these things build on themselves in arbitration salaries. So you hit a lot of home runners, home runs, excuse me, in your first, in your, in your, your third pre-arb year, your fourth, or your first arb year, you're going to get expensive, and that expensiveness, if you will, is going to build on itself, which is why he's now making over 20, and even though he's coming off a bad year. Um, he's still going to get paid. So that's not a good combination from a surplus value standpoint. So most of that surplus is, is has been eroded. So if you just think about if if he were a free agent today, what would you pay for him coming off of that year? And $20 million sounds, yeah, probably okay, like probably fair. And that's more than Bellinger got off of his bad year. Um, and then, you know, because he's got one year of ARB control after this, He's probably going to get a raise up to as much as 30 next year, maybe not depending on how he does. 
But in other words, there's no surplus next year either because he's going to get even more expensive next year. So what what do you got here? You've got a slugger that's that plays bad defense who's lost his swing, and it's going to cost you twenty million dollars. So that's why. Yeah, it's a concerning situation. I don't think anybody's talking about Guerrero getting non-tendered this off season. That would be a shock. I think he still has some surplus, and even if he doesn't, the upside is so high that it's it's worth hanging on to. Especially, you know, he is a fan favorite. He is a a quote unquote star talent. Like these kinds of things, even if they won't get factored into our model, they do matter for team decision making. And so I don't I don't think his job is in danger this off season, but we could be looking at something some tough decisions if he doesn't turn it around this upcoming season. It's it's kind of make or break for him. Um, another team I want to talk about briefly here is the Milwaukee Brewers. They have a lot of guys who are starting to get expensive. Um, it's it might be a bit of a turning point for them. I mean. People have been clamoring about, like, when are the Brewers going to trade one of those top three starters for years now. The Woodruff, Burns, Peralta trio. They kind of had, they each had their rocky moments in 2023. They weren't necessarily that big three, just iron lockdown top of the rotation that they were expected to be. And, you know, Brandon Woodruff finished the season with a shoulder injury. That's concerning. Burns wasn't quite himself at parts of the year. But that is still a really strong trio, and with how badly teams need starting pitching, if the Brewers made any of those guys available, they would be highly sought after. And just looking at the arbitration raises here, Woodruff is expected to earn $11.6 million. Burns is expected to, learn, to earn $15.1 million, and it's going to be their walk year for both of them, so their final year of arbitration. And then just looking at some of these other financial commitments, uh, Devin Williams, their solid Closer, he goes up to $6.5 million. Willie Adamas, their shortstop, he's up to 12.4. Adrian Hauser, solid back-end arm for them, 5.6. I think you can look at Rowdy Telez at 5.9 and Eric Lauer at 5.2 as pretty obvious non-tender candidates. But still, money's starting to tick up. The Brewers aren't a team that has ran their payroll too high historically, and they've always been open to shuffling some pieces around with things like the Josh Hader trade when he was getting more expensive. So... I wonder if we're going to see push come to shove this offseason, especially after another pretty disappointing early playoff exit, and maybe see them flip one of these top starters for a big bat that can help reinforce that offense. Yes, but here's the problem. You've lost a lot of surplus value with those guys. Burns and Woodruff are heading into their most expensive third, third RB year, as you just pointed out. And Burns did not have as good a year as you might have hoped. And Woodruff has a bad shoulder, like really bad shoulder. They had to keep him out of the playoffs, which means we, you know, it's bad, folks. So um, so that's going to scare some teams away. And Burns' disappoint, relative disappointing season is going to not scare – I mean, teams would love to have him, but he's not a slam dunk, and he's getting expensive. So you're not going to get a haul. For either one of those guys, if you do anything, if you get anything for Woodruff, considering the injury. Um, but, you know, Burns is not going to, you know, because he's going to be making a lot of money and he's coming off a okay-ish year. So, um, so it's almost as if they traded, they waited too long. On the other hand, obviously you can't blame them for going for it because they won an easy division. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, they do have a good farm. Um 
David Stearns, who, we're talk, who we'll talk about later, I'm sure, um, you know, did did it did a good job building up that farm. And so there's a but there's a lot of uh, position player talent and not a lot of pitching talent. So if they do make deals, I would imagine they'd be looking in that direction. Um, and they're also not the most high spending team, considering they come from a smaller market. So you know, it would figure that if they did want to make a move for pitching. It would be like a veteran for young pitching kind of a deal, so kind of like what the Guardians sometimes do. But again, they're not going to get that much for Burns and very little for Woodruff. So Peralta still has a lot of value because of his ridiculous contract. It's so you know it's so low relative to his value. So that's where may, maybe the the opportunity is. Yeah, definitely some some issues there and and some kind of uh, uh, blockages to a big blockbuster deal with one of those guys, like you mentioned, now that they are near the end of that contract and they each have kind of their own concerns. Um, but if you're the Brewers, you got to do something, I think. And I don't think it's necessarily time to blow it up. Like you said, there is a strong contingent coming up the farm. We haven't even seen Jackson Chorio yet, but he's looking like he's going to be a superstar right off the gate and that's in addition to they have a really interesting young core of outfielders and Bryce Terang looks like he might be solid and and there's a couple other names in that farm or breaking into the big leagues already so I think there's some upside for this team I don't think they need to ship all those guys off and enter into some long rebuild but they're gonna have some decisions to make you know are we just gonna hold stand stand pat and you know, hope we can find ourselves in that 85 to 90 win range again and sneak into the playoffs and see what happens. Are we going to take a bit of a step back and shoot for 2025 when some of those young guys are coming into their own? Or are we going to shuffle some pieces around, see what we can do to inject some life into this offense and see if we can improve our team for now without hurting the future too much? I, it's going to, and all of this is with, not necessarily a new front office contingent because Stearns had already taken a step back in 2023, but it is a new era in Milwaukee now that he's gone. And so these decisions are falling on kind of new shoulders looking to make their real first impression running the team. Yeah. So Matt Arnold, I think is doing a fine job there, but uh, we don't know what the status of Craig Council. His contract has just ended and uh, we don't know if he's going to be re-signing there. Obviously lots of speculation that he might go to the Mets. Um, so there's that question mark as well. Right. Plenty of questions up and down. Um, I'm sure they would have liked to put those questions off a little bit with the deep playoff run, but wasn't in the cards for them. Um, speaking of teams that a deep playoff run wasn't in the cards for, uh, the last one I really want to mention here is the Padres. Juan Soto, we knew he was going to cost a lot of money. We knew he was going to get a big raise. We knew he was going to probably be north of $30 million, and that is true. He's at $33 million projected. That's not too surprising. The reports of his demise were greatly exaggerated. He's still Juan Soto. He's still incredible. 155 WRC plus last year. Slash line of 275, 410, 519, and he's uh, still 24 years old. It's insane. <laughs> um, this will be his final year before free agency, which could be a very, very lucrative free agency for him. So he's going to have all eyes on him. He's going to be trying to lead the Padres back to the playoffs after that disappointing year. He's going to be trying to set himself up for uh, on this platform year for a strong free agency 
um, the bidding war and yeah, he's going to be expensive. And with all of the other financial commitments on the Padres, plus a recent report that they're trying to shoot for closer to 200 million for their payroll, they're going to have to get creative this off season as well of, you know, do they have to take a step back in certain areas? Do they have to start consider trading a veteran or two to cut that payroll down and try and, you know, build a deeper team instead? It's it's not a very clear answer there because most of their money is tied up in guys who they really can't trade. You know, they're not going to trade a Manny Machado or a Fernando Tatis Jr. or a Hugh Darvish or a Joe Musgrove. Like, those guys are pretty locked in. So... If they are going to be shedding payroll, it's going to have to be from kind of the depth guys that they kind of need more of anyway. So it, it's it's a tough situation, not too jealous, and it looks like A.J. Preller and Bob Melvin are somehow both going to be back to try it again, which is also surprising. Um, I, I think this is a team we'll talk about a lot throughout the offseason. I'm sure we'll have an article or two about them as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, just just seeing that 33 number for Juan Soto, even if you expect it, it still makes your eyes pop out a little bit. It does, and which is why his trade value is down to like low 20s now. Um, because if you figure, what would he get for one year as a free agent, as a 25-year-old? You know, 33 plus 20 is 53. Yes, he's Juan Soto. That's a lot of money. And that's already on the high end, right? If you think about an AAV, Fifty-three million for one year, so thirty-three of that in salary, twenty-ish in, in if you were to trade for him in capital. Um, so that's uh, that's getting up there. And some people see see that number. I've seen a lot of one one total proposals on our site, and think it's too low. But <laughs> I'm sorry, thirty-three million dollars is a, is not a low number in salary, which is why that that number is about as high as it's going to get in the low twenties. And uh, and 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 that will be the same when we update as well. But he is Juan Soto, and he's a great hitter, and lots of people want him, so somebody may may pay up for that. Um, but yeah, I, the other point I want to make about the Padres is, you know, you could take the easy route and say, okay, Blake Snell is a free agent, Josh Hader is a free agent, both of those guys were pricey-ish, so there's twenty five, thirty million coming off the books right there, plus a couple other guys that. Um, the reliever whose name I can't remember who they signed three years ago who never pitched Pomerantz. Drew Pomerantz coming off the book finally. So they got they're cleaning house a little bit that way. Um, is that so that's going to take care of business from a budget standpoint to some degree, meaning they don't necessarily have to trade one Soto. And I think they're going to go for it one more year. The signals if if both Preller and Melvin are staying, and Melvin's last year of his contract is coming up, it would it would only be logical to say, okay, we're going to give it one more go with this, with bring the man back. So that would include Soto. Like, why would you trade Soto if you're trying to win a World Series? So I think they're going to probably let those other contracts slide off. And the other thing Preller loves to do is trade from his farm. And the good news is his farm's been rising back up in value. He's got some 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 capital there now. After trading away a whole bunch of it in the previous years, it's been coming back up. So he's got some some stuff to work with there. So I could see him doing that and replenishing the Snells and Haters that way. So and being competitive one more time at least. Yeah, and the other thing going for them is that that U Darvish contract was front loaded. So he's going to be making 
a handful less than he did last year. I think it goes from like twenty right. million to twelve million or something too. like that. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, no, but Machado's is backloaded, so he's making oh, okay. fifteen. But you know, the the end of it is horrible, which is why we have, yeah. his, have his negative value. But yeah, so so from a 2024 budget standpoint, it's actually working in their favor. Right, and I could also see this being a situation where maybe they come into the offseason saying we want to be closer to 200 million. You know, that's not saying that our cap is 200 million, but we want to be closer to 200 million than the 270 or whatever they finish the year at, which is, I think, reasonable. And like you say, that um, th- they got 30 million plus coming off the books as is just by guys walking in free agency who it was probably never going to be super realistic for them to hang on to anyway. With the year Blake Snell just had, somebody's going to pay him more than they probably should. And that, given all the other financial commitments they have in place that probably shouldn't be the Padres, right? Um, so I, I think, A, we're not calling $200 million, you know, the hard budget line necessarily, at least according to whatever reports we've seen so far. And B, you know, between Preller and the owner Peter Seidler, if they see an opportunity, they're not going to let it walk because of some financial, some fake financial constraints. Um, you know, the report was that they want to stay near that 200 million mark because apparently, you know, something like they took out too much debt or something like that. Some, some financial mumbo jumbo that I can't bother to know about because I'm not a billionaire, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that they are hard capped in any way. And so if something falls into their lap, some sort of an opportunity they can't pass up on, you know, if, if Yamamoto, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who's coming from overseas, if his market, I mean, it sounds like his market's going to be really hot, but if something happens and it falls in some way and, and they have a chance to get him, I think they're just going to do it and ask for forgiveness instead of permission, right? That's what so, they're doing, yeah. Exactly. And so and you can kind of see the same thing on the farm, like you were suggesting, where, yeah, they're probably not going to trade an Ethan Salas or even a Jackson Merrill just because those guys are kind of in that blue chip tier that you don't see traded too often, except for in a Juan Soto trade. But if a deal falls into their laps where they have to give up one of those guys, I think they will because they know this is their window. And even without trading those two guys, there are a handful of guys in that next tier that have kind of popped up in the last year or two and are solid trade candidates. You know, Robbie Snelling is... I think he was like the minor league pitcher of the year or something. Like he's impressive. He's a, a real trade chip. Like they, they have a handful of guys down there that could get a deal done. Maybe not for another Juan Soto type without dipping into the Salas Merrill, but to upgrade this team. And the good news is I think they have enough stars. They really just need to fill out the rotation and fill out that lineup. And they, sh- they should have been a playoff team this year. If you believe, you know, expected stats and Pythagorean win loss and things like that. Um, and things just didn't break their way. So if they bring back essentially the same group of guys, find a way to replace Blake Snell and Hader, even if they don't exactly replace their 2023 production, at least find some sort of a fill-in for those two and maybe add a little bit more depth, I don't think it's hard to see them as another serious contender. Like They're, right. they're still a really good team with a lot of really good players. And I'm going to counter the point about Jackson Merrill, though, because he's got a lot of trade value. And a lot of teams would want him. He's a shortstop. Where's he going to play? You got a long-term contract with Xander Bogarts, who's still in his prime. 
Okay, so maybe and he doesn't want to come off the short, so he's blocked there. Got a long-term contract with Machado at third. Got another young uh, year of Hassan Kim at second, and Cronenworth somewhere in the mix as well. So like, where are you going to play Jackson Merrill unless you convert him into an outfielder? Um, so like, I could see a guy like Perler who has no no hesitation of pulling the trigger to say, yeah, okay, he's blocked. I, I need pitching. Here you go. I could see that happening. And I, I definitely could as well. Another avenue, and I don't want to give too much away here because I may or may not be working on a roster revamp article for the Padres coming sometime in the near future, but I could see an argument for trading Haseon Kim. He's, he's very popular there, and maybe he's the type of guy that you should be looking to hang on to if you're the Padres because he is cost-controlled and he is very valuable and, and versatile, and, and he brings a lot to the table that some of these older veterans might not. But given what you've just what you just laid out about kind of the logjam on the infield, the, the roster crunch there, and maybe you can sell high on Kim coming off of such a strong year that he might not repeat, and at the same time kind of bet on a bounce back from Cronenworth since he just had a down year, and he, I think he's a better player than he showed in 2023, so maybe you can pick up some of Kim's slack that way and instead flip him to a team that needs some middle infield help for a starting pitcher. Just uh, just an early thought. They have a lot of options is kind of what we're, what we're coming down to at the end of the day. Yes, they might be a little bit more financially strapped than they were, say, last offseason. And yes, they might not have the absolute, you know, treasure trove of prospects that they had at one point before they started making all these moves. But they still do have plenty of resources in both directions and plenty of options for where they could go from here. Right. Can I just call an audible and look at some of the other uh, names that jumped out at me in, from the Matt Swartz piece. Um, yep, the guys floor were is getting yours. Ex- yeah, guy, guys were getting expensive. Okay, Pete Alonzo, Mets. Uh, he's going to make $22 million. We've talked about him a little bit in the past. He's making a lot of money because he hits home runs, and that tends to get you paid in arbitration. And because he did it earlier in his career, you know, it raised the bar. And so the bar keeps getting higher. So now he's worth $22 million. Here again, it's a similar situation. Like, okay, I can see Pete Alonso. Like, but he, what did he 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 bat in the you know his batting average was low, right? He, he's in, like that's his thing. He hits home runs and RBIs, but is there a whole lot else there? Uh, he hit two seventeen. So are you going to pay twenty two million plus a whole bunch of capital if you wanted to trade for him? No, twenty two million is pretty close to his fair market value is what I'm trying to say. There's a little bit of surplus on top of that, but not a whole lot. And so all the rumors of him being in the trade market here and there, you're not going to get a haul for one year of an expensive Pete Alonso is what I'm trying to say. Um, now it's the Mets, so they can afford to pay him, and so they'll probably keep him. But he is getting expensive. That's my main point. Uh, a couple other guys that jumped out at me. Uh, Tyler O'Neill is due $5.5 million, coming off of a bad year. Um, I don't think it's been any secret that the Cardinals are willing to move him, especially after that incident where, you know, he was called out for lack of hustle. Um, so it's not, you know, 5.5 5, 5 is not cheap. I mean, it's not expensive, but for a guy who's been very inconsistent, had injuries, had underperformance, had, you know, this and that, eh, I think he might be in the non-tender category here. We can crunch numbers and find out. Um, so that's another one. Um your boy Christian Walker, the Diamondbacks is getting twelve point seven. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, he's he's coming, but he's getting expensive again. Another first baseman who hits dingers, 
that's expensive. And there's not a whole lot of market value on top of that. Um, so, I, you know, these are guys that are sort of like, you know, Mikey Strimps, he's going to make $7.3 million for the Giants. Yeah, they can afford him, but he's not going to be worth a whole much more than that. You know, it's just, uh, hmm, I don't know, just scrolling through that, the list here. Uh, Dominic Smith, $4.3 million, yet another bad year for, for Dominic Smith. A little bit of a bounce back year, but... I think he's yet again um, in the non-tender category. Lane Thomas, however, had a really good year, and so he's estimated to jump up to $7 million. And so he's starting to get expensive. Now, that's still worth it. There's still surplus there, and he's got more control. But it's starting to get a little bit pricier for a non-contending team, so one would think they'd be listening to offers on Lane Thomas. Um, Austin Nola of the Padres, got to be a non-tender. He's only making $2.35 million, but he's had such a horrible year. I don't think – I think they'll they'll shave a little money off with of, by non-tendering him, so there's another way. Um, let's see. Who else? Uh, David Bednar is making 4.7. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot for a closer, and it's not. But we talked about how the Pirates would want to keep Bednar, but he's starting to lose that control that we talked about. He's only got three years left, and they're going to be pricier years. You're going to see his surplus value go down. So that's another one to kind of say, hmm, would they listen to a trade on him? I don't know. Uh, the Rays have a bunch of guys that are, while not getting expensive, they do raise eyebrows. Like Harold Ramirez is going to make $4.4 million. I only bring this up because it's the Rays. And, you know, <laughs> the Rays are going to do their thing and, like, non-tender a guy who's eh, not that critical to them. Uh, Randy Orezarena is going to make $9 million. Again, that's not expensive for a star, but I wouldn't be surprised if they started listening to an offers on him. That's what they do. They trade guys who are getting expensive and losing control for younger versions of them. And so I suspect having just gotten knocked out and having sort of ended the year with a whimper that they've got some changes to make in Tampa. Um, the Reds, Nick Senzel, $3 million is not a lot for him, but I think it's pretty clear he's he's a bust, and I think he's going to be a non-tender. Brady Singer at $5.1 million is getting a little pricey, coming off of a disappointing year. He's still got surplus value due to control, but he's a back-end starter, and he's starting to get expensive, so I keep an eye on that. Austin Meadows, once again, is making $4.3 million for the Tigers, and once again, uh, having lots of problems off... Uh, with health issues, and so I could see him being non-tendered at that price tag. Kyle Farmer of the Twins, $6.6 million. I don't know why anyone would pay $6.6 million for Kyle Farmer. No offense, he's a good guy, but he's just a bench utility guy. I don't see him being worth that much, and so I think that may be a non-tender. And then um, Michael Kopech is starting to raise eyebrows as he gets into his arb years, coming off a terrible season, making three point six. I think they'll try to fix him. Maybe somebody will trade for him and try to fix him, but there's not much value there. Uh, Glaber Torres is getting expensive at $15.3 million. We knew he was going to be right in that range, so that's not a surprise, but it just sort of points out that, yeah, he had a good year, but he's a second baseman with bad defense, and we've seen this in the past, that second basemen who are bad only tend to not have a huge market, especially at $15 million, so there's not a lot of super surplus value there either. So, um, you know, those are just the ones that sort of popped out at me as like, hmm, <laughs> either non-tender-ish or trade-ish for various reasons. Yeah, a couple of quick comments I have on the, on some of those guys. Going back to Bednar, 
Mm-hmm. In 4.7, like you said, doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a pretty sizable baseline for a reliever. And so, you know, he puts together two more very good, gets a lot of saves, David Bednar type seasons. We're looking at that like 15-ish range in that third year. Or yeah. Third year of arbitration his final year before free agency. And right. that's kind of near that upper limit that you like to see for even the best relievers. Mm-hmm. So at that point, there might not be a whole lot of surplus left. So it's it's a good point to mention him. Um, one name that popped out at me as well was Alex Verdugo on the Red Sox. His final year of arbitration, he's at 9.2. He's very just, eh. <laughs> like, he doesn't do a lot all that well. He's kind of in this one to two win range pretty consistently. He's got you a know, good the, eye, Josh. He'll get on base sometimes. (laughs) Uh, He won't strike out a ton, but with that, he doesn't bring stellar defense. He doesn't bring power or speed. He's kind of just, I know I've said this before, particularly talking about the Red Sox and and Andrew Benintendi, but like looking at these slash lines and and this overall production from Alex Verdugo, it's kind of Ryan Sweeney. (laughs) Um, And 9.2, you know, it's not breaking the bank for the Red Sox, but I I don't think he's getting non-tendered necessarily, but that's like there's there's not any real surplus left there. I don't think if they even did look into trading him. Um, and then the one other name I wanted to mention, not for any you know salary arbitration related reasons, but just because I can't think of another opportunity to bring him up on this podcast episode. But Ryan O'Hearn, we talked a lot about Ryan O'Hearn the last couple off seasons when it seemed like teams kept passing him around for like no reason. He hadn't done anything at the big league level. He was out of options. He was starting to make money in arbitration. Like I could not explain what the heck was happening here and why teams kept trying to take chances on him. And he, he went through kind of a, a merry-go-round off season. Uh, but he was a nice player for the Brewers or not the Brewers for the Orioles this season. Uh, 118 WRC plus a good like bench bat against righties for them and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a couple big postseason hits here like he hat tip to Ryan O'Hearn you know he's a guy who we very consistently had below surplus you know he had a, a stretch in Kansas City where he went 68 WRC plus 64 68 71 and this is a guy who's like bat only first base only like slugger and he can't hit a lick at the big leagues and now he's 30 yet the Royals kept bringing him back and teams kept taking chances on him. And I guess this year we're finally seeing why, you know, he's tapping into that power. He's tapping into that production against righties. So good for him. Um, good for the the Orioles there who I guess last note I'll give on kind of this arbitration topic. Um, they have a lot of guys, you know, it, it's none of these giant contracts, but Anthony Santander at 12.7, John Means 5.93, Cedric Mullen 6.4, Austin Hayes 6.1, Ryan Mountcastle 4.2, Jorge Mateo 2.9. Like, they just have a lot of guys who are getting bumps kind of across the board into this range where you're starting to talk about real money. So I'm I'm just going to use this as a warning for Orioles fans that this is probably the next line that you're going to hear Angelos start spouting as to why he's not signing free agents. It's because of all of these arbitration raises. That's at least the excuse that he's going to give you. So uh, buckle up for that one. Um, I wish you all the best of luck in in finding an ownership group that will actually spend money on your team. Uh, But yeah, brace for that one. Yeah, good point. Um, And just to circle back on Ryan O'Hearn, yes, I agree. Um, one thing I noticed looking at his stat cast numbers in Baseball Savant, he hits the ball really hard. 
that's probably what you know is what was attracting teams to him. His exit velocity is 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 on now high percentile. His max EV also in the 110 range for a couple of years. So even though he was doing a lot of other things badly, he was hitting the ball hard. And so, um, and, and sure enough, his hard hit rate, you know, this year is in the, one of the top percentile, 94 percentile. So, um, so I suppose that's the consistency. I'm no expert again on on that stuff, but um, you know, in this day and age. You know, that's been a commodity that people look for. Um, so kudos to the Orioles for fixing him or finding the thing that is fixable. And, you know, they also did that with uh, – I would I would venture to say they've they've sort of fixed Aaron Hicks as well. So they got some interesting sort of uh, turnaround chops there in Baltimore. So good for them. Yeah, good for them. They're a fun team. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's most of our player news. We might touch on some at the end if we have time. Uh, let's start talking about some of this front office movement. I think we've alluded to it a few different times, but let's let's start digging into these individual bits of news here. Um, probably the biggest one is that Billy Epler, kind of out of nowhere, announced his re- resignation. Um, a couple days prior when David Stearns had officially been hired on with the Mets, they talked pretty publicly about like, yeah, Epler's going to stay here. He's going to be my number two. I'm excited to work with him. This is going to be a great working relationship. We talked about it a little bit last episode about how things might um, shake out between those two and if they would be able to work together or if Epler would be on the way out. Um, And it seemed like they were going to try and make it work. And then Epler resigns. And it turns out it was because of allegations from MLB, or I guess allegations that MLB is inspecting of Epler and the Mets improperly using the injured list and using kind of the the shadow IL, the ghost IL, the phantom IL. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Uh, The phantom IL where you send a player on the injured list with some somewhat made up ailment just to kind of either give him a break or, you know, facilitate a different roster move or whatever. Um, So this one is, it's very odd for a few different reasons. First of all, you know, it seems like things developed really quickly here. Just a couple days ago, like I said, like they were very publicly saying, Epler's going to stick around, we're going to work together, we're looking forward to how this is going to work out. And then all of a sudden he's gone, and and later that day we find out about the investigation here. Um, But then the other element here that's really interesting is the Phantom IL has been a thing forever. And, you know, especially when they went down to 10-date injured list for pitchers, um, and then they quickly walked that back to 15 days because teams like the Dodgers were really using that 10-day limit for pitchers and just saying, hey, this guy's only going to miss like a start if he's a starting pitcher or like three or four outings if he's a reliever. If he's kind of banged up, let's just drop him on the injured list and he can take a week and a half off and we can get a fresh arm in here. Um, and, and that didn't seem to spur any investigations, at least that we are aware of. But something happened here in New York. I wonder if there was a disgruntled player. I wonder if it's related to what we'll talk about a little later, I'm sure, with Buck Showalter uh, being let go by the Mets. And, and there were some players in that clubhouse that really liked him. Uh, so I don't I don't know what to make of this from that kind of like drama side of things of, you know, who prompted this? What prompted this? Is there some sort of tension? Is this just the Mets continuing to beat the Mets? Because that's kind of what it seems like. Um, but at least from, you know, a front office perspective and looking forward on, on both sides here, well, now you're looking at the Mets might, might want to hire a new general manager to work under Stearns, to work with Stearns. So they become a candidate for some of the, uh, folks we've been seeing let go or some of those common candidates you see come up year after year. 
And then on the flip side of things, it looks like Epler um, might be kind of recusing himself. He might be, you know, he might not be a candidate for some of these other teams that need a GM or need a front office executive. He might be kind of taking a step back to let this investigation unfold. So um, that's kind of at least my initial reactions here. Um, John, (laughs) did this catch you as far off guard as it caught me? Because this came out of nowhere. So my first reaction, and I made the point in previous podcasts, but it's awkward when you're the guy and somebody else comes in above you who is the guy now, and it doesn't feel good. Like I've been I've been in that situation once in my work past. It doesn't ever work out, and I've been on the opposite side as well where I came into a situation where I was the boss, and the guy who had been there before running things was like, oh, I report to you now. So that's always an awkward situation no matter what side of it you were on. So I had made that point before all this happened, and so I wasn't surprised when I first heard the news like, Oh, well, he wasn't at the press conference, but maybe the press conference was meant to be just Cohen and Stearns. Okay, fine. Um, But it's weird that Epler had been the guy, and then he wasn't at the press conference. And so then I sort of wondered, okay, is that really okay? They said nice things about him, like, yeah, we need his institutional knowledge and experience, blah, blah, blah. But then three or four days later, he resigns. So I was not surprised from that standpoint. What I was surprised about was this whole Phantom IL thing, and I don't want to comment on that because it's being investigated. Who knows what happened? I hear there's smoke. I hear somebody wrote a letter. I don't know what's in it, Um, but now I'm wondering, okay, if there's more smoke, there's more fire. But in the general landscape, the baseball industry knows, to your point, everybody uses the IL for – I don't want to say nefarious reasons, but the lines are blurry there. There's a lot of like – back spasms or sore this or sort of like like barely qualifying for the injured list just to give a guy you know some rest so you can bring in another fresh guy up everybody does that i think it's pretty common knowledge you know so this would have to be more egregious than the norm to get called out and so I'm not sure what it is that's more egregious than the norm if it's just the usual oh this guy is quote unquote back spasms then i don't think that's worth an investigation my point is there's got to be more to it than that yeah like i i could see it one of two ways and we're not going to know for sure until this plays out but option one is you know it is just a disgruntled player or two and they actually went to the lengths of writing a letter reaching out to mlb whatever and MLB can't just dismiss this and, you know, look past it in this case. You know, if somebody actually maybe, – maybe there's kind of a clubhouse unwritten rule of, like, this is this fandom IL is a thing that happens and you kind of just have to go with the flow on it. And someone with the Mets in this case kind of broke that unwritten rule, reached out to the league, and that necess- necessitated an investigation here. So that's kind of option one. And I'm not, I'm not intending to frame that in any sort of a negative light or anything because this – it's going to have a negative impact on a guy's career, you know, being IL'd when it's not necessarily earned. You know, you're out there to try and compete every day, and just because, you know, your performance was off or you're a little sore but you'll be good in a couple days, like, suddenly the team's kind of jerking you around. Like, that's that can't be fun. Um, so not not trying to shed light on whatever player might have done this, any, any, shed any kind of negative light on that guy. Uh, but that's kind of option one. Option two is maybe this is the start of MLB cracking down on this and kind of sending a high-profile signal that, like, hey, we don't want this happening anymore. 
that would be a little surprising to me just because of how long it's gone on and how we really haven't heard much of anything about it. Like, like I said earlier, like the most we've really seen is when MLB moved the injured list to 10 days and then realized, Hey, this is being manipulated for, for pitchers and pitcher usage reasons. Let's push it back to 15 days for pitchers. Like that's really all we've seen publicly from MLB about this kind of phantom IL roster manipulation topic. So it would be pretty surprising to me if just kind of out of nowhere with no real warning, they started to crack down on it. So I, I'm leaning toward the former, but like I said, I think I think we need to wait until this investigation plays out and we see what's going on um, and, and if, if any more news comes out from this. Yeah, agreed. Well, the good news is that they do have their guy in Stearns, so it's not going to be, you know, earth-shattering. They could just go into the season with Stearns and, and not really hire a, a second-in-command to him. We'll have to see how it plays out. It seems like they're probably going to hire someone, but like I said, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, let's move on to a couple others. Um, probably the next highest profile um, front office move was the Diamondbacks extending Mike Hazen. Uh, we heard that he was a candidates or at least you know a, a potential fit for the Red Sox job now that Heim Bloom was let go and Hazen came up with Boston he's very very well respected in the game he was a sitting duck he had a I think he had just a club option for 2024 and that was it or actually it was he ran through 2024 with a club option for 2025 uh, but now he's been extended through 2028 with a club option for 2029 which makes all the sense in the world. He's built a really impressive crop of young talent in Arizona. You know, not all of it has entirely clicked. You look at a guy like Alec Thomas, who's still trying to figure it out at the big league level, and some of their top pitching prospects haven't quite put it together the way you might have hoped they would. But at the end of the day, like, they did a masterful job with a lot of international classes, with a lot of deep drafts where they got a lot of draft picks and hit on most of them. You know, the Corbin Carrolls of the world world don't come out of nowhere. Like, that was a great pick by Hazen in his front office. They've made some good trades. Ketel Marte has been a stalwart guy there. Zach Gallen has been huge for them. Um, there's really not much not to like about Hazen's Diamondbacks tenure, so it makes all the sense in the world that they'll go out of their way, give him a long extension, and keep him running the show for years to come instead of risk losing him to a team like the Red Sox that could offer him all of these resources and more. So uh, not super surprising to me, uh, but I think a really good move. And I think it's one that the D-backs fans that I've talked to have been very uh, supportive of. Yeah. And I just want to mention, he's had a rough go of it with his wife and her medical issues and the fans and the team had, and the players have all kind of rallied around him. So good for him. Good for the extension. Good for the Diamondbacks for, for keeping him on. Right. Um. A little bit lower profile, but the Reds did sign Nick Kroll to an extension and gave him a nice promotion to president of baseball ops. Um, again, nothing too shocking. He's kind of been running things there for a while now. He's pretty well liked, I would think, in Cincinnati. I, I couldn't say for certain. I don't talk to Reds fans as much as I talk to D-backs fans. Um, but he seems like he's doing a good job. Obviously, he's put together an impressive crop of young talent himself between the Matt McLeans and Ellie De La Cruz's of the world and making savvy trades. The the Castillo trade has, is looking pretty good for them. The Tyler Maley trade is looking like a highway robbery for them. And so it seems like he does a good job of operating under ownership constraints. Um, 
and finding young talent and putting a, a solid roster together. Kind of a similar deal with the D-backs, where there's still some pieces that we're waiting to click there, but it doesn't seem like Crawl is any, in any way causing problems for this organization. It seems like he's a good guy to continue leading it going forward, and you know, good for him to get a well-earned uh, promotion as part of this. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, and I, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, Twitter followers on well, people I follow on Twitter who are Reds fans, and they gave him a lot of heat uh, for the Winker trade, the um, even the Castillo trade a little bit for over, uh, not overpaying, but like we're getting rid of a fan favorite, um, and then and then lo and behold. All of those deals seem to have paid off. He makes really good trades. He knows value. He knows how to rebuild. Uh, he's been the right guy at the right time. The team is young and fun and competitive again, and so now the, the pendulum is completely turned in his favor. Everybody loves him now, so good for him. I believe I might be making this up. I hope I'm not. I believe the Reds now have the longest drought of winning a playoff series now that the Twins won that wild card round and, and ended their lengthy drought. Um, but I wouldn't expect that to last too long here with the solid core that Crawl's put in place and been developing and adding to as he goes. Um, I, I reserve the right to retract all of these positive statements about Crawl if he doesn't bring back Joey Votto for another year, uh, but we'll we'll wait and see what happens with that this offseason. Um Last bit of front office news, I don't know if I have a whole lot to say about it, but we received a report that the Angels were parting ways with their assistant general manager, Alex, either Tamin or Tamin. Mm. Um, apparently, he'd been working pretty closely with Perry, Perry, over the last, uh, Perry Manassian over the last handful of years, including when they were both with the Braves. Um, so maybe a little bit odd that they're either letting him go, or I guess it was reported as parting ways, whatever you want to take of that. Um, we're going to see potentially some movement in Anaheim. I, I don't necessarily think Perry Manassian's on the hot seat. I think I think you have might have some more thoughts there. Um, but we're going to see some roster movement for them. It's, it's kind of a turning point for that organization as a whole, and maybe, maybe Tamin just wants to take some other opportunities or, or I, I don't know. I don't know how to speculate much off of this. And yeah. this is not a person I had heard of before this news dropped. I no, was blatantly with, honest. <laughs> same with me. I have nothing to say about that, but I did want to just interject one other point that is sort of in the range of front office topics, which is this interview that Jerry DePoto did a couple of days ago where he talked about 54% being the goal annually and it didn't come across well. And I want to just take a moment and defend Jerry a little bit because I think I know where he's coming from. And I've also seen articles lately, I think there was one on Fangraphs a few days ago, kind of criticizing the idea of sustainable success. Uh, David Stearns also used the term sustainable success in his press conference and has kind of been kind of the guiding principle of a lot of GMs. And, you know, those, here at, at BTV, we, we – you know, we're, we crunch the numbers, we look at the valuations, and we see where the surpluses are, and we see, okay, that looks good. Teams with a lot of surplus value are getting a lot of bang for the buck, and what that means is that it's going to translate into more ability to win more often. Now, the Dodgers model is the one that everybody aspires to. Andrew Friedman has the best of all worlds. He's got a highly competitive MLB team who's been competitive for the last nine or ten years, 
and he's got a great farm, and he's got plenty of financial resources, like the full triad. You can't beat that. So everybody wants that. Not everybody has the financial resources, but they all want the competitive team plus the farm because that gives you sustainable success. And so that's what they're striving for in New York. That's what they're striving for in Seattle and various other places. So when Jerry Depoto says, I'm striving for sustainable success, it means he doesn't want to go through the up and down cycles. And what he's saying is, I don't want the fans to be starved for – you know, for a few years while we rebuild and then hopefully build a winner. I want it to be more consistent. I think that's a good thing. And maybe he gets criticized for like, uh, okay, he traded Paul Seawald. Maybe they could use Paul Seawald. You know, for like some GMs get criticized for not being aggressive enough at the deadline. And so I think there's a lot of ways to misinterpret the comments like that to say, oh, you don't go for it enough. Isn't it all about winning? Shouldn't you go for it more? And, and, Dave Dombrowski, damn the torpedoes. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, but Dombrowski shelled the Red Sox farm and they had to rebuild. It's not always a good thing. So in my mind, it's not a bad thing at all to try to uh, strive for uh, sustainable success. That's a good thing. That's what the Dodgers are showing. You get the best of all possible worlds. Why is that a bad thing? So give Jerry DePoto a break. He was trying to say a good thing. It didn't come out right, but his point is not – um, is not a bad one. Yeah, generally speaking, I think I completely agree with you. Um, and and he even walked back the comment the next day and was like, that didn't sound the greatest. I didn't say that the best. This is really what I was trying to get at. And so, yes. And I, I totally get where he's coming from there. I think the one bit of pushback I have and... I think I've discussed this in the past, talking about the Guardians on, on this podcast. Um, but when you are the Mariners, when you are the Guardians, when you are, um, what's another team that's kind of in this, you know, the, the, Brewers. the Brewers, you could even say. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're one of these kind of mid-market teams, mid to small market teams, and you clearly have a lot of smart people working for you, and you clearly are trying to emulate a team like the Dodgers or a team like the Astros or the Braves. That's great. And I think that is an awesome goal. That's an awesome team to like awesome model to emulate of like you're saying, like sustained success and kind of firing on all cylinders and not having these peaks and value valleys. But on the flip side of that, if you're the Guardians, you're you're always going to be playing catch up to some extent with the Dodgers because you don't have that last piece of the puzzle. You don't have the financial might that they do. So, are you going to try to exactly emulate their model to the best of your ability with that kind of shortcoming in mind and just kind of hope that, you know, following similar lines and with the random variation of baseball, you'll be able to come on top a couple times? Or do you need to divert from that model in some areas or in certain scenarios and differentiate yourself and give yourself some sort of an edge against a team like that? What I'm, what I'm saying is, like, the Dodgers are so hyper-focused on this system and keeping the system churning and being very, very selective with their big moves and, you know, they'll... They'll spend to keep a guy like Mookie, but they won't necessarily go make a giant free agent ad, you know, 
Freddie Freeman is a big free agent ad, don't get me wrong, and he's been very, very good for them, but they haven't really been spending on the Bryce Harpers and Manny Machados and, and guys like that in that kind of 250 to 300 million range. They're sitting pat with their couple of guys that they've picked, extending their Mookie bets, letting a Trey Turner walk, letting a Corey Seager walk, developing from within, things like that, which is working out fantastic for them, and it's furthering their goal of always being competitive, always having a farm system. You know, they're not blowing past the luxury tax year after year and losing draft picks and hurting their farm as a result. And that's working for them. If you're the Guardians and you're never going to have that financial aspect of it, though, do you need to pick a spot where you say, this is going to be our year? Or, hey, we have this awesome farm they're not all going to be able to play at the big leagues. Let's consolidate pieces, make this big move, make this big trade, improve our team significantly. You know, maybe not even just for a one-year guy, but a guy who can make us stronger in the next two or three years. And that kind of, that ability and willingness to be aggressive every now and then when it seems like the stars are aligning, that is what will put us into the same territory, if not ahead of the Dodgers, who are always going to play it kind of safe with their approach. Um, so that that's my only bit of pushback to yeah. the, that model and what DePoto is kind of putting at here is like, and, and, you know, granted, both of these teams that I'm mentioning specifically here, the Guardians and the, the Mariners, they still have time to, to make that push. And... You know, there are different situations where the Guardians still have this kind of glut of prospects and could make that push. You know, you could argue whether the Mariners even have the firepower to do it anymore now that they've graduated a lot of these guys. And maybe it would have to be a financial thing that could really set them back. Um, so, so the specifics of it are going to vary case by case and year by year, obviously. But I think, I don't know. And I think just from a fan perspective, it's fun when your team goes all in, you know, I still have very yeah. fond memories of the 2014 Oakland A's and their big push at the trade deadline. Did it fail miserably and end in the worst, most disappointing baseball game I've ever seen in the 2014 AL wildcard game? Yes. Did it lead to one of those extended down periods that teams like the Mariners and guardians are now trying to avoid? Yes. But there is still some, some, value in the entertainment aspect of like my team is loading up they want to win right now they're pushing all of their chips in let's see how it plays out with all these yeah. fun talented players yeah and you could argue the ace did the same thing at the end of their most recent window by trading jesus lazardo five years of lazardo for two months of starting Marte, and it looks bad now um but yeah i mean that's the price you pay right <clears throat> so yes i think that's a good argument um so I could see it both ways. Um, you know, I do think there's there's merit though. Um, you know, and I, I think the other sort of factor here is the pendulum tends to swing back and forth a little bit. Now we saw in last year's off season that there was a whole bunch of spending, and the Padres spent a whole bunch of money. We just talked about the Padres, but a lot of teams did. The Mets did, and look where it got them. And so I get the sense, if I'm reading the room correctly, that there's a 
bit of a pullback happening with the Mets saying, okay, we're going to get rid of our expensive guys and we'll pay some down and we're going to go more organic and we're going to go with prospects and we're going to rebuild the right way. And people have been saying the way you build a winner is, you know, through the farm and you, you know, homegrown and then you augment. You can't just buy free agents. You can't just buy a winner. This is not the old style winner days. So, and that keeps coming up again. So I think we're going to hear more of that this off season. Like spending is not the answer. So the whole idea of sustainable success kind of goes with that. Like, let's be let's be adults in the room and not drunken sailors. And I think maybe the flip side to that is the Rangers, because their spending has been quite successful. But caveat one, it's not the same situation as the Mets, where the Mets didn't really have a whole lot going on and just kind of tried to buy it out of thin air. That, that's that's maybe an unfair assessment of them. They had some talent in place, but they really pushed to accelerate their timeline, specifically by spending and either extending guys or signing new big big name players, the Scherzers and Verlanders of the world. Whereas the Rangers had a few guys in place, but they really did supplement it pretty aggressively. You know, jumping early on Semyon and Seager. Going for a guy like John Gray, who really didn't look all that special, but has been a pretty solid mid-rotation guy for them. So I think their spending has worked out. Caveat number two, though, is not all of it. (laughs) You know, Jacob deGrom, that one's looking rough. The big trade for Max Scherzer, that one has yet to pay dividends, although we are hearing some positive reports that he might make his way into the playoffs after all. We'll have to see if they advance and see how his progression goes. But um, I, I do agree with you. There's going to be a lot of people pointing at the Mets and the Padres and saying that's that doesn't work, definitively doesn't work. Um, I just offer the Rangers as a bit of a counterpoint while acknowledging that it is a different situation. Um, and also I'll point to the Padres, you know, peripherals and expected uh, – expected record and things like that that you know maybe maybe there was some some merit to this team that they built and it just kind of didn't the, the ball didn't bounce their way as much as it could have okay well there will be plenty of time to talk about these teams in the off season as they continue to make moves and, and point themselves in a new direction um let's get to the last bit of news we really have here some managerial movement and lack thereof. Um, I don't think we have a ton to say specifically about the managers themselves and maybe their impact on the team, because that can be pretty debatable of how much it actually matters outside of just kind of the, the idea of moving a guy, the idea of moving on from a guy and changing the culture. Um, But I think we can use this as an opportunity to talk about these teams and what they have coming next. Um, Let's start with the let's start with Buck Showalter and the Mets. We touched on it earlier. I don't know if we'll have a whole lot more to say here, um, but as I mentioned earlier, the Mets let Buck Showalter go. There was some discourse in the clubhouse about it, um, some disagreement, but I don't think it's the most shocking move there is. You know, new head of baseball ops comes in. David Stearns is clearly the guy in New York. It makes sense that they give him an opportunity to choose his own manager especially after the Buck Showalter era was not necessarily a very successful one for the Mets. So um, that's about all I have for this one. Did you have anything to add? No, I mean, I think we're going to hear the usual sort of old school versus new school kind of debates and takes. Yeah, 
I get it. I, I don't think it's that cut and dry. I just think new guy wants his wants his guy, and they want kind of a seamless operation. I don't know about Joe Walter by any means, so um, I just think it's as simple as, hey, I want my guy. Don't could be counsel. We don't know, uh, but it's fair to say, in, as Steve Cohen pointed out, that he has you know Stearns has the right to kind of set up his shop the way he wants to, and that's all it is. Yeah, wouldn't be shocked at all if it is counsel, but also I'm not. I'm not betting on that or anything because the Brewers still have every reason in the world to try and hang on to the guy. Um, moving on, let's let's head to the other side of the country. Uh, the Giants fired Gabe Kapler. Uh, this was a very disappointing year for the Giants. Um, two years ago, they had that magic 100 and whatever win season out of nowhere, 107 win it, wins it looks like. Um, and since then, they've been very average and very 500 and have not made the playoffs. Um, again, how much of that is actually Gabe Kapler's fault versus just this roster of part-time guys that Farhan Zaidi is kind of trying to force together into a, compet- into a contender and, you know, trying to hold down the Ford until some of these highly regarded prospects make their way to the big leagues? Um I don't know. This this seems like a bit of a scapegoat type thing. But one idea that I saw kind of pitched there is, I I forget who said this. If I find the tweet or article or whatever it was, I'll go ahead and link it. But basically suggesting that, like, yes, there is some value to be had in this, like, versatile, platoon, part-time, you know, contribute, piece together this roster type approach that they had going on. Um, But that that should come up through the farm with guys who have been doing that as they came up through the minor leagues. And that's kind of the culture of the team of the organization. Whereas with the giants, they might've plucked together a bunch of guys from free agency, from trades from other teams who have spent their whole careers being, you know, just a starting pitcher or just a starting everyday hitter. Like they've, they've gotten comfortable in these roles and maybe being forced into roles that they're not as familiar with, not as comfortable with and don't have the buy-in for. So that was just an idea I saw pitched, and, and that maybe that leads to more uh, more unrest in the clubhouse, and that that could fall on Kapler's shoulders. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, I, I don't have a whole lot else here. I'm not sure that Kapler was necessarily hugely to blame for the giant struggles of the last two years, but clearly they wanted a culture change, and usually when that happens, the manager is the guy to go. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case, actually, because... Kapler was sort of, you know, the poster child for total analytics, total, uh, you know, front office seamlessness with the field manager, like sharing that analytics, blah, 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 and all being on the same page and all thinking the same way. And now he's had two managerial jobs. The first one you could say maybe wasn't the right fit. This one with Farhan Zaidi at the top. In you know, in his front office and his devotion to analytics, and I don't want to paint. I hate the word analytics now because it's getting abused so much. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Like they were in, they were in. It's all Moneyball, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but what I'm trying to say is they were in sync, right? And and then you know it was disappointing. Um, so one's going to call into question like, does that style still work? And it's going to relate to whoever David Cerns picks because that whole sort of model of front office down through the ranks down to the field manager, you know, seamlessness is the ideal, it would seem on paper, you know, but 
you're still waiting to see whether that works. And then people point out, oh, Dusty Baker just won the World Series last year. He's old school. It doesn't really work. You don't need that. You just need a guy who can has feel. He has feel for the game. And so there's going to be that debate. I'm not sure I buy it um, because I think there may be other things going on here. Um, and the other thing that – to that point that, that Zadie mentioned is that he was really disappointed when the, the Giants started losing when it counted the most, and he pointed that out. And what my take on that is, is okay, is he missing – is Kepler just a guy with glasses who's staring at a piece of paper and doesn't have feel? Like is, or is he – did he lose the clubhouse? Does he lack pep talk skills? What is he missing? You know, He's missing that thing that – you know, that Duke Rockney speech. You know, Is that it? I don't know, but it, it raised that question. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. This could be an entire podcast episode itself of you know what value a manager actually brings, and it's been constantly debated left and right on the internet. Tons of think pieces, tons of articles about what the true value of a manager is. I think we're in an era of potentially some some extent of manager homogeneity. Is that the word? Um, There's similarities across all managers. You know, we don't have any managers really that are going to be putting the scrappy bunt a guy over guy in the two hole and making him bunt every time. Like that's kind of dead. And once you take out the obvious like anti-sabermetric approaches that managers used to employ and that used to divide the analytical managers from the old school managers, and now it's just like, hey, this guy bunts a little bit more often or hey, this guy will play the matchups a little bit more aggressively or yank his starter a couple outs earlier or whatever. And that's really the distinction. I think since all 30 managers, you know, there's no, I don't think outside of maybe you could argue Alex Cora in Boston. um, I don't know if there's any manager who's truly running the show across baseball without at least some sort of a working relationship with his front office on even the day-to-day moves and lineups and, pitching changes and things like that. Like I think baseball has changed to the point that that's universally a collaboration between the front office and manager. It's just the extent of that collaboration and who has the strongest voice and how much pull they have. Um, And so I think the real difference maker in today's game and today's managers is the clubhouse side of things. And how can you get your players to buy into whatever your plan is whether it's your plan whether it's the front office's plan like it's your job as the manager to get the players on board with it and operating you know well-oiled machine happy clubhouse competitive still have that fire going not as much uh, disgruntled things like that so to me that's where the role of the manager is really shining right now in today's game i think that's why you could argue and the next one of the next ones we're going to get to here is the Padres hanging on to Bob Melvin, as we alluded to earlier. I think Bob Melvin has a fantastic reputation for keeping a clubhouse. And, you know, regardless of some of these stories that have come out about the Padres clubhouse, I, I think, I think Melvin isn't the reason that the clubhouse fell apart in potentially fell apart in pot in San Diego, especially since some of those stories have been kind of refuted and kind of pushed back on by the players. Um, but I think Melvin has this excellent reputation, you know, even if he isn't the most analytics heavy guy, you know, he's not necessarily old school, but he's also, 
he'll he'll lay a bunt down every now and then, and he'll mismanage a bullpen like the best of them. <laughs> but I think he has this really strong reputation for keeping the clubhouse together, getting his players to buy into his ideas, to the, the front office's ideas, things like that. And maybe the issues that we could talk about in San Diego might have come from other other avenues, you know, of star power that Melvin's not necessarily familiar with or of questions about leadership among those stars that have been asked in some of these articles or even just the simple like, hey, if, if the Padres won 10 more games, we might not be talking about any clubhouse issues at all. Maybe the losing just initiated some, some clubhouse um, unrest. And if you roll out a contender next year and they're fighting for the NL West, then all of that goes out the window without any kind of culture changes whatsoever. So why pin this on Melvin and kick him out of here when you still like the guy? Um, I don't know that that was, <laughs> I'll, I'll get off my soapbox here. Um, but I think, I think the Kapler firing is another, um, another data point for that argument that like, yes, he was pretty analytics heavy. Yes. He was close in with the front office, but I don't think, I don't think the next manager of the giants hire isn't going to be, they're not going to hire some guy who completely runs the show on his own. And, you know, Art Howe from Moneyball keeps putting in, uh, you know, doesn't play Pena, right? Like they're not going to hire a guy who's totally on his own script and doesn't listen to the front office. That's just not how managers work anymore. So it's got to be that culture side of it, that keeping the players happy, keeping the clubhouse intact side of it and, and keeping them on board with what the front office is saying. And that has to be what Kapler was missing. Yeah. And I'll even bring up a related point in this last uh, wildcard series where, uh, John Schneider, the Blue Jays manager, pulled Jose Barrios in the fourth inning after walking a guy. Uh, he was he was rolling up until that point. He hadn't given up any runs. Um, there were lefties coming up, and he's a righty. So Schneider brought in a lefty, Yusei Kikuchi. Um, you know, and they ended up winning the. Oh, sorry, they ended up losing the game. So the move did not matter. But it's really become kind of a hot point of discussion. Like, did he make that call, or did the front office make that call? And uh, according to Ross Atkins, the GM recently, he said, no, that was all Schneider's call. So now there's a couple of ways to look at that. One is did, did Atkins say, uh, um, like, was he placing blame? I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, other people say, well, no, it was, you know, the front office made him do it because there's the whole, like, second time through the order kind of debate that comes up in third time through the order and all that. So I don't know what to make of that. Um, you know, was that a fuel call on Schneider's part or was that second time through the order playing by the book, you know, um, one of those things when the Rays pulled – when Kevin Cash pulled, pulled Blake Snell a couple of years ago. Is it, that was one of those things again. So it's another sort of – you know, this is going to go on and on a bit. Well, like, you know, is it analytics? Is it the manager? Is it, is it, is it paper? Is it numbers or is it feel? Um, I don't know if we've solved that yet. And so when we talk about these managerial opens, to what degree does that play? I don't know. I think you just have to do the job well. You have to get along with the front office. You have to, um, you know, obviously own your clubhouse and the player have the players respect. Um, and I think you know Stearns mentioned it in his in his press conference. Look, it's become a very hard job because you have to manage up, you have to manage down, you have to manage across, you have to look at the numbers, you have to go by feel, you have to do a whole bunch of things. 
and you know have to know all the little details of what's going on with your players, and you have to bullpen manage and all these sorts of things. It is a very complex job. So I actually have a lot of sympathy for the guys who do it, and to do it well, given all of those challenges, is a monumental task. So um, I've lost my plot. <laughs> I just wanted to point out the John Schneider thing, and I'm not. I don't think that was that big a deal, but I just want to say it's a very hard job. That's a good point, and. We could talk another 15, 20 minutes on that move it, itself, but I'll, I'll save that for another day. Um, but yeah, I'm with you that MLB, managing an MLB team is one of those thankless jobs. Like no one, no fan base thinks that their team's manager knows how to manage a bullpen. Every, every, every manager sucks at managing their bullpen because ultimately Every bullpen is going to give up runs sometimes, even the best one, and it's always going to be the manager's fault of, oh, why did you go to that guy in that spot? So things like that. It, it's a tough job. It's it's a thankless job. Um, respect to all of those who, who do it and continue to do it, and best of luck to all the folks who got let go and who are getting hired next. Um, did you have anything else to add on Melvin? Um, uh, otherwise, we can move on to the last name here on the list. No, let's go. Okay, last one is Phil Nevin with the Angels. Uh, as I mentioned, going to be plenty of turnover with the Angels this offseason. I don't, I never thought particularly highly of Phil Nevin. He really came across to me as this scruff and no-nonsense, old-school, <laughs> gritty type guy. I don't know if that's an unfair assessment of him just from, like, looking at kind of his resting mean face that he has going on. Um but that was at least the impression that I always got of him, and it seemed like a weird weird choice to, to keep him on. Uh, he was the interim guy who filled in after they fired Joe Madden, and you could see just by kind of looking at their faces, it seemed like night and day between Joe Madden and him, both sides of the spectrum of managing, and I was surprised that they brought him on for another year, um, but... They did. It didn't go well. We all know how the Angels 2023 season went, and it's not surprising that, you know, I don't think this is Phil Nevin taking the fall for that because there's a whole lot that went wrong for them, and it would be silly for anyone to put all the blame on him, but it's not too surprised that surprising that he's on the outs here. No, I, I agree with that, but I also do think he's he, – you didn't see a lot of <laughs> – what's the word? Uh, you know um, – yeah, he was the kind of the gruff guy, probably the old school guy. Um, you know that I don't think he quite got it. I just don't think he quite got it. Um, yeah, I think you know we just talked about how hard the job is and all these things you have to do to be successful in it. I think he's probably one of those guys who just like let me just manage the field and my players, and that's about all I can handle. And the rest of it seemed like it might have been a little too much for him. So um, he feels like it feels like he's like more of a bench coach kind of guy than a than a the number one kind of guy because that's what he was before. Um, and it just didn't seem like he was totally totally a fit for that role. But yeah, I get it. Um, and I will add in closing that. Um, you know, my my son's uh, youth baseball team club level also made a managerial change a couple of weeks ago, and they got rid of the old gruff guy who <laughs> no one liked for a younger guy who's a little, a little more uh, personable. So it so far it's going well. So hey, it happens on all levels. Oh yeah, the the games changes are making their way down to the youth. Suddenly they're there going to be go. spouting off their uh, the twelve you know, instead, of, instead of just <laughs> recording their batting average, we're going to be recording a. Uh, your 14-year-old's ex-woba and, I got it. <laughs> and I using got that it. to make lineup That's decisions. That's my job. 
I love it. Um, last two bits of news here before we call it a day. Um, couple unfortunate injury updates. We talked about Sandy Alcantara last time. Looks like the worst did come to – it's not the worst. The worst would be his arm falling off. But uh, Sandy Alcantara is undergoing Tommy John surgery. Huge bummer. He's going to miss the entire 2023 season. He is expected to be back for 2024. Um, we, we kind of set our piece on this, I think, last time discussing his elbow injury and setback and that this might be the next step. Um, but obviously a big bummer for the Marlins. They just barely squeaked into the playoffs despite, you know, they got really lucky and they had Alcantara and they just barely got it. So they're going to need to make some improvements if they want to make it back and make it further next year. Uh, but I think even with a healthy Alcantara, that was very true. And so this just makes it even more of an uphill climb for them to really be true contenders next year. Yeah, I feel bad for, for Sandy. He had such a great year in 2022. So um, I do think the arm was probably hurting. He was trying to play through it. No, okay. He's, you know, he's getting the surgery. So it's, um, I will say his value on his on our side has gone down dramatically as a result of both the sort of performance issue and the and the injury obviously is going to keep him out for all year uh, 2024. So, um, so if you look closely, you may have noticed that. And so, but best of luck to him as he comes back from that. Absolutely. And then a, a similarly talented pitcher, Felix Bautista with the Orioles. He's also going under the knife. He really hit a wall near the second half of last season and struggled for about a month and then went on the injured list with some elbow inflammation. And it seemed like he might make it back for the playoffs, but instead uh, things took a turn for the worse and he's undergoing Tommy John as well. Um, between these two guys, you're looking at one of the best starters in the league, one of the best closers in the league. Um, Fortunately, their teams are, do have some depth in both areas. You know, the Marlins, despite trading Pablo Lopez and despite maybe some underperformance here and there, some injuries, they still have a decent crop of young starting pitchers to be working with here. And I, I, I would imagine they'd add at least one veteran to that group just to give it some length. But you have a guy like Max Meyer coming back from injury and you're hoping for a bounce back from Trevor Rogers and Jesus Lazardo broke out last year. So they're in an okay spot with their rotation, even without Sandy. And similar case here with the Orioles in their bullpen. You know, Yenier Cano has been a great story for them. Um, there are certainly other names that I'm blanking on right now. <laughs> um, da, 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 da. They won't have Shintaro Fujinami back, and he was kind of up and down with them anyway. But as I stall while I pull up the roster resource page, because I know there are other names, Danny, Danny Coulomb and CNL Perez are a couple solid lefties for them. And DL Hall has been really good. Brian Baker throws really hard. Like they have a lot of interesting options in that bullpen, even without, um, without Bautista, but it is of course a big blow for them. And for both of these pitchers as well, you know, Bautista and Alcantara, two very, very hard throwing, very nasty pitchers. If that stuff ticks back, or if their command goes a little bit, or if there's any kind of complications from this Tommy John, it's obviously a big blow for them. But we'll have to wait and see, and we'll have to enjoy the 2024 season without those two guys. Yeah, well, best of luck to Batista as well. So, And yeah, I, I do wonder, though, how far the Orioles are going to go, uh, because their rotation was not considered like stellar. I mean, granted... You know, they kind of fly under the radar a bit. Uh, like most, a lot of fans don't even know who their rotation is. Um, but their bullpen at least had been getting some attention with Batista and Cano, and now with Batista out, 
um, and Cano kind of coming back down to earth after that hot start, you know, there's there's questions there. So um, I, I guess we'll see how far the Urals can get with without Batista, without that scary guy in the ninth. But uh, I I have my doubts. I think that's the one of the weaker points of their of their team. Um, but uh, we'll see. And good luck to Batista. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That is all that I have. Is there anything else you want to add here before we wrap up? Uh, no, just again, uh, as we said near the top of the show, uh, we will be doing our first end-of-season update. Uh, we do tend to have – you might think, okay, we do one update and that's that. It's not true, actually, because a lot of things change. We get new data as the off-season goes on. Uh, we we have arbitration estimates. Then we have the real arbitration uh, numbers when they come in, and sometimes those are different. And then we have like what the market starts doing with free agent valuations and such, and so that starts to play a role in dollars per war calculations and things like that. So there will be many updates. Um, this first one is just you know right at the tail end of the regular season and, and such. So um, it gives you a, a you know at least an idea of what uh, the values will be. You know, coming forward in the off season, that's the first point. The second point is we've talked about this for a while now, but we do have for real a new version of the of the site coming uh, with a lot of new features. So um, my hope is that we'll launch by the end of October, and so far so good. So I'll keep you posted on that. Awesome, looking forward to it. It's going to be well worth the wait. I know it, and <laughs> yeah, expect plenty more content from us as we get through the postseason and into the off season and uh, once the transactions start flying again but until then there's a lot of good baseball to watch this month um we'll, we'll probably have our next episode sometime around the championship series or maybe the world series depending on how the calendar plays out um but i am looking forward to watching a lot of really fun baseball between now and then like i said we've already had a lot of great games in the early going and no reason to believe that isn't going to continue yeah, one of the great things about baseball, as all baseball fans know, is this is real. This is where it really shines. Like you get, like some people think it's a slow game, but when you get sort of those pregnant pauses and the drama that's unfolding in a close game towards the end, where every little thing matters, you know, people are just on their feet. That's when you see the beauty of the game at its finest. So enjoy that. Right. Well, I will be doing so. <laughs> I can't wait to watch the rest of it and. Uh... Yeah, that'll do it for us this week on this episode. I uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. John, I almost forgot to mention, as of last night, we are on Blue Sky as well. So nice. find us on Blue Sky Social, also at baseballvalues with the, the dot bsky dot social, whatever, whatever that naming convention is there. We're Baseball Values over there as well. <laughs> um, also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the postseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.